facing higher education. My name is Rollin Moe, and I am your host for our special series on emergent scholarship. This seven-part series provides a deep analysis on the conceptualization, generation, and dispersal of knowledge and its relationship to the academy, be it the professoriate or the relationships between education and the community. Our hope is to highlight the progressive and congruent work happening in scholarship. Our hope is to highlight the progressive and congruent work happening in scholarship, as well as signpost opportunities to support this production and dissemination in traditional spaces, such as academic disciplines, campus departments, and institutional promotion, tenure, and review. Our guest for this episode is Dr. John Becker, Associate Professor of Educational Leadership at Virginia Commonwealth University. For four years, John served as the Director of Learning Innovation and Online Academic Programs at VCU and was integral in forming their Academic Learning Transformation, or ALT-LAB. John also holds a Juris Doctorate from Boston College Law School, and both his scholarly and practical work exist at the intersection of emergent teaching and public policy. John has for a long time been heavily involved in all aspects of emergent scholarship. As a scholar, his research and practice are heavily influenced by furthering the diffusion of knowledge by progressive means. As an administrator, his work has engaged public policy to best provide resonance for novel work. And from his practical expertise, he has long developed systems and structures to promote and amplify innovations in scholastic development, implementation, and production. We had a long discussion about these and many other topics. Yeah, I'm fascinated to talk to you, especially with uh, the resources you've shared over the past couple weeks as we've been, we've been circling around this, this conversation um, in regards to the, the need for emergent forms of scholarship, emergent production of scholarship, emergent modalities of scholarship as relating to the mission and future of higher education. Uh, And your background is fascinating in how you have arrived at your place in the higher education landscape uh, and then what you've done within the higher higher education landscape. So I'd love to start just with a a brief biography of yours and the life experiences that led you to where you are today uh, as a professor, as well as where a pushback on traditional scholarship has accompanied that life story. I was a public policy studies major in college. I was always interested in kind of politics and public policy, but didn't know exactly where I wanted to go. I had my mother-in-law was a public defender and really loved her job. And I, my mo- my mother was a, was an educator in, in the Bronx in New York city. So I just had this real interest in policy advocacy, social justice, equity, particularly for, for younger people. And so I was sort of headed down some kind of juvenile justice path. Additionally, I would say most most of the public policy majors at, at the college where I went kind of went to law school, some because they really wanted it most because it seemed like the best thing to do. I was more towards the latter, and I, and I had this kind of interest in juvenile justice. So I went to law school, didn't like the first year very much, but Nobody really likes the first year of law school very much. I happened to take a course, the School of Education. This is at Boston College, and it was a course that was cross-listed between the 
law school and the school of education and it was a, an education law class it was taught by a woman named diana pullen um, who was had both a law degree and a phd and her real kind of expertise was around uh, large-scale testing and kind of the equity effects and have been involved in some major lawsuits about sort of the inequities of, of assessment and also around special education. I kind of forced myself into her office and forced her to take me under her wing. She sort of did that. We crafted a joint degree program between the two schools, and ultimately I decided that while the law was interesting, I was more interested in the educational policy side of things and so went on to a doctoral program in the politics of education. All the while thinking I was interested in this idea um, that I think we're talking about around kind of research utilization. I had become familiar with the work of a woman named Carol Weiss, who was at Harvard, who kind of wrote some of the early stuff about research utilization. And also in law school, the one of the courses that most interested me was uh, around uh, the federal rules of evidence. And there, there was a particular, very kind of particular area within there that I was interested in, which is kind of Federal Rule of Evidence 702. I, I, I'll never forget the number. And it was all about kind of the admissibility of expert witness testimony. It was about when in the law do we accept expertise and, and research as, as evidence. So thinking about that, and I'm sort of heading into this doctor program, thinking about, you know, where, where does research have an impact? How does it have an impact? All under this kind of general umbrella of, of research utilization. And that was my interest. That was my passion. That's what I thought I was going to study as a doctoral student. For any number of reasons, I ended up kind of losing that focus. And I sort of ended up in the world of educational technology in the K-12 world and kind of went down that path. But then when I became a professor and, and it came around to this world of doing scholarship, I had an opportunity to kind of return to some of that thinking and thinking about my own work and was it was it going to matter and was I just going to do what most faculty do, which is to kind of publish for the sake of publishing, or was I going to try and produce research that was useful, that was utilization focused? And so over the last decade or so, I've been kind of dabbling here and there, thinking about this issue of scholarship that matters writing a little bit about it here and there, nothing terribly formal. But I, I just, I continue to believe it's, a, it's an enormous issue. And I'm now in a position where I'm on uh, the promotion and tenure committee for the School of Education here at VCU. And so I've, I'm now seeing issues of scholarship from a kind of a different angle and seeing more about this idea of publisher parish. And it's really just about getting stuff out there. And it's really not so much about kind of making a difference. And so I'm, I'm hoping that in this next aspect of my professional life that I can encourage others to, to think a little bit differently about the role of scholarship in higher education. There are a lot of places, John, that we can... <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and we'll try and hit as many of them as possible. The first one, though, is one of the things you last mentioned in terms of being on governance and faculty committees that recognize tenure promotion and review. One of the things that I personally have run into in this conversation around how we can better champion the utilization of scholarship, the modality of scholarship, the production and development of scholarship, one of the sticking points continues to be who needs to accept that change. 
And I find the, the cans kicked in a lot of cases. So you'll speak with a discipline, a guild, who will say, we, we support Ernest Boyer, we support these emergent forms, but it's not our decision in the end. In the end, it is really up to the school, the institution. And then you go to the institution and you'll hear, well, we, we support all of this as well, but we really have to listen to our accreditors. And if you talk to the accreditors, often you will hear, we support this, but what we need in the support aspect are the disciplines. We need the guilds to buy in. And so it just, you, you have this feedback loop that is difficult to break into. Meanwhile, you end up in this, in this publisher parasite. I would be interested, as you've worn all of those hats as well, um, and currently are involved in faculty committee work, what, where do you see the problem points in what we think of as the publisher parish model and getting your, your work out into the acceptable places, despite impact, versus where we see the work should go? Everyone wants to blame somebody else, and nobody seems to want to take on the, the challenge of, of making the change. I see, and, and here I go kind of laying some, some blame, but I, I do think a lot of it would start with the, the professional associations. I, I live in the world of, of education, and so the two kind of big organizations that I live in, so to speak, are AERA, the American Educational Research Association, and then my kind of subfield of ed leadership where UCEA, the University Council on Educational Administration, is our big professional organization. And I really believe that if, if those organizations would foster discussions and, and actually make some changes, disciplines would follow. So if, you know, a, uh, AERA and UCEA are, I would say, complicit, particularly in the battle against just open access publishing, because they are essentially in bed with the publishers, uh, they each have contracts with ma major for-profit publishing agencies, and those for-profit publishing companies kick back a lot of money to those organizations. And so until they're willing to kind of step away from those relationships with these publishers, they're not going to advocate for open access publishing, which is you know, kind of a very small bit of this issue. If UCEA were to say, we encourage our faculty to publish in open access journals because we believe the field has a very particular and very specific need to publish in places where educational leaders will actually read them and can actually read them. We're, we're just going to continue to publish our work behind paywalls and wonder why people are questioning our legitimacy and credibility. And so to think about legitimacy and, and credibility for a moment. Uh, an article that we were looking at offline over at uh, Quillette, the societal irrelevance of academic work. A professor of neuropsychology noting that the manner in which we have set up reward structures in higher education is leading to its internal erosion. So the outside factors that we think about declining state funding, attacks from certain political groups, general unease about the return on investment of an education, so putting it in, in commodifiable terms, is not the only piece that is bringing the walls down, but it is this internal fight within what matters in higher education and the things that we value for our personal recognition and growth that the institution supports are not things that actually value. There was one quote in it that was an old adage, the reason that people are so snippy 
is because in higher education and academia is because the bar is so low. Having come to where you are because of your interest in policy and your interest in relevance of knowledge and the association of that, and it's interesting to think about your K-12 career, we could have an entirely different conversation in regards to the relationship between public policy and K-12 and higher education. Thinking about your career, why in higher education is it so difficult for research to not only emerge from the tower, but have an impact outside of the tower? I think it's as simple as the the reward structures and, and our promotion and tenure policies. We will do what's what's valued. And right now, our promotion and tenure policies reward work that has an impact in a very specific sort of way. By impact, typically what promotion and tenure committees are looking for is impact factors, which is a a metric that is used to kind of rank journals and to see how much prestige there is in a particular journal. There's a, a lot of really good writing that kind of questions how impact factor is is measured. They're, they're measures of journals and not particular articles. Uh, and there's some good writing about kind of the um, self-fulfilling prophecy of impact factors. If In my field, again, in educational leadership, there's a journal called the Educational Administration Quarterly, EAQ, which is kind of widely spoken of as the top journal in our field. So the impact factor will almost necessarily be high because they'll get lots of submissions because lots of people will submit there because there's this social construction of quality around a particular journal. And so as they get more pieces and and also, you know, people, when, when they're looking to offer evidence of a particular claim, they'll go to EAQ first. And if they find it, they'll use that as a, as a citation, um, and then the impact factor goes up. And people are only going there looking for citations because of this social constructed measure of quality. It doesn't have to, to be that way. The more our promotion and tenure criteria stick to these ideas of impact factor, uh, not other ways of thinking about impact, the more we're going to kind of get stuck in our ways. There's a guy named Rick Hess. I think he works for the American Enterprise Institute, AEI. And I, I agree with almost nothing Rick Hess speaks about or writes about. He and I are kind of philosophically on different sides of the spectrum. But in his, he has a regular blog on Education Week, and he does an annual piece now where he talks about, I forget what he calls it, but he talks about kind of the five tools of scholarship, and he produces a, a ranked list, which, is, which I'm not a fan of. But the idea is right. He says that we should measure scholars by other things, including how many mentions in the popular media are there of the work of educational scholars, uh, and how often have they shown up in the congressional record as having testified before Congress. I mean, to me, that's impact, right? If we're going to Congress and speaking in hearings to say, you know, you're, you're looking at this particular policy issue, I've done work in that area, here's what I have to offer. That's scholarship that matters to me, but that kind of activity uh, is not considered highly in promotion and tenure criteria. And so coming back to where I started, I mean, that, that's where it all is. I guess in K-12, we say what, what gets tested gets taught the same way, you know, what's, what gets measured, what get, gets counted in our promotion and pr- tenure criteria is what we end up doing. And so until we change those things, nothing's going to happen. And, and it's not hard to change those things. Was it MLA, Modern Language Association, which came out with a set of boilerplate language of how you would evaluate 
digital scholarship that would help departments think about if we wanted to change our promotion and tenure criteria that would value other sorts of scholarship, non-traditional forms of scholarship, what kind of language can we put into our P&T criteria? It's easy enough to do. It's just nobody's doing it. And the, the value of that work, think about not only the, the faculty who have to advocate for the acceptance of that work, but then it has to go through administration and review so that faculty senate can vote on the new language. And so there's a lot of labor that goes into that work. And at what point does that labor, is the struggle of that labor worth the payoff? And I guess one of the, one of the things that we're, we're noting is there hasn't been the case yet for that. There hasn't been the protection uh, for people who may want to uh, blaze that trail. That's exactly right. I mean, my work on the, as a committee member on the Promotion and Tenure Committee is considered service. And I, I do that work. To change our promotion and tenure criteria would require an extra amount of service. It's not necessarily what the committee is tasked with doing. It's tasked with largely with reviewing the, the cases that come before it. But if we were going to undertake an effort to seriously review our criteria, there would have to be a champion. And in, as I see it, in my case, that would have to be me. And that's more service. But for going back to promotion and tenure criteria, service doesn't count as much as scholarship and teaching. And so, you know, how much do I want to kind of, kind of fall on the sword and, and do it? Now, I'm tenured, so I have some, some privilege there. But, uh, yeah, to your point, that, that burden of labor would fall on me disproportionately. And I have to decide, you know, do I want to take that on? From my perspective, from, from my experience, having to navigate faculty administration and staff and things that are going to affect all of those, all of those places, because scholarship, while faculty produced almost exclusively, has direct impact on staffing as well as on the mechanism of campus administration. Without the champions in those other arenas, it can be very easy to become the person who falls on the sword. John, one piece to to think about, how do we make that change if the issue obviously has to happen at, at institutional levels in many of these cases? That's going to require understanding the mechanisms of our particular institutions and working within those. But we have two places where our combined efforts may make a better impact, and that would be with the crediting agencies, but more mm -hmm. likely with our academic guilds. You mentioned mm -hmm. AERA as one place. So for those of us listening to this as an education podcast, which is probably the, the largest uh, percentage of people, what would it look like for a movement within AERA to be more accountable and more accepting of publishing uh, in open places, uh, thinking about open peer review, even considering what emergent scholarship can look like so that an AERA session is not going into a room to listen to people read their papers, but yeah. engaging with that knowledge in a, in a more emergent fashion. I'm not hopeful that, that AERA is, is going to, to do that. I mean, there's a, a fascinating bit of research to be done to look back to kind of a content analysis of AERA programs over the last you know, two, three decades to see how much as a field we talk about how little impact we're having why is it that the dominant educational agenda is all about standards and accountability when we have so much research that says it's problematic? I, I'm certain that if you went back and looked, the themes of the conference, session after session about, you know, why isn't our work having more impact? 
furthermore, to my earlier point, you know, ARA is kind of beholden to their publishing, their for-profit profit publishing company. So I'm not terribly hopeful, but I, and I, so I think it maybe could be done kind of at the, the disciplinary level. And in my case, something like UCEA might be more interested in doing that. And it would, it really would just take looking at what some, what like MLA did. And I, you know, I think you and I talked about this offline that it, it would be really as simple as producing some boilerplate language to send out to departments to say, you say you're interested in social justice. You say you're interested in, in generative work. You say you're interested in applied work. What would that look like as valued within the P&T criteria? Here's some language for you. Uh, so that it, not everyone is building their own or inventing their own wheel, so to speak, that we could have something to point to to say, here's, here's what it would look like. I love the idea of uh, AERA content analysis study yeah. uh, I cuz I cuz I think about it was it was uh 2013 and the poverty was the the theme at AERA and they did a champagne toast after the keynote it was just one of those moments of incongruence to think about here's what we're discussing and then here's how we are presenting that I <laughs> think about that in terms of this conversation that we say we want knowledge to be effusive and we want knowledge to uh be disseminated throughout not just academia, but into the into the broader public so that our resonance is understood and our expertise is valued. And then our practices are at best regressive. So in looking at your background in kind of pushing back on traditional forms of scholarship, some of the things that you've done uh, very early involved in online journals, involved in uh, unique styles of peer review, uh, but there was a project that was especially interesting for me in regards to uh, hacking schooling, yeah. where you guys did a uh, one week, one book project, thinking about bringing in unique voices and having a faster turnaround to publication. I would love to hear about your experience working on the one week, one book project. For those who will listen to this and don't know about One Week, One Book, that was uh, an effort led by Dan Cohen and some others. Uh, at the time, he was at George Mason. He's now kind of the head of libraries at, at Northeastern. But they did this project called Hacking the Academy, and it was the idea of, like, could we write a book in a week? If I recall correctly, it was mostly about this idea that lots of people had written some really good stuff, uh, particularly blog posts, stuff that wasn't um, formally published, about how we might think differently about higher education. And so they uh, kind of put out a call for people to submit stuff they had written about, you know, transformation of higher education. And they were going to curate all this stuff into effectively a, a book, which, you know, caused the question like, what is a book? Um, what is a publication? They did ultimately, they, they curated it. They created a you know, great kind of website where all the content was was displayed. They edited a bit to kind of put what needed to go where. And I, I think they also produced a kind of print book as well, bothering to kind of curate it. And so I think, you know, Audrey and I sort of said, we, we can do something similar because we were both then kind of working in the K-12 space. Um, and I, th I think we kind of put it together in, there was a kind of a free service that could create a, sort of online web-based publication. Um, 
and and decided to use that format to to do it. But at the end of the day, as I said at the beginning, um, it it would have taken uh, a bit of effort to uh, curate it better, to find the right platform for it, to publish it, to find an audience for it. Um, the the folks who did the one week one book project, I I think, had a little a little bit of funding and a little bit of kind of institutional support since they were doing it through, I believe, the Center for History and New Media at George Mason. So e even um, kind of fringe projects like that with not a lot of overhead, it requires human resources and probably kind of institutional support as well. I think at the time I was probably pre-tenure. And so while I did say that, about a couple of years before I would stand for tenure that I, I had sort of adopted this uh, stance that I would only publish in open access journals. I still knew that when it came time to submit my portfolio, I was going to have to have some of the traditional stuff. And so I didn't really have the kind of slack I needed to do that kind of project with, with Audrey. Uh, but it would be a really interesting project because there's, there's still a lot of really good writing out there that needs to be kind of curated or could be curated fairly easily and quickly. One of the things that I think about if we are facing the financial crisis in higher education that is coming in as a four alarm fire on all sides, this sort of work that requires very little overhead, mainly institutional support, somebody to give you an okay, that this is a path you're willing to, you can go down and if it doesn't work out as expected, we can still take the lessons learned is a win-win for all aspects because you are then providing your faculty with space to do their call uh, and what the, the work that is important to them, understanding that they will have an instrument to be able to, to judge success. And then you're not using their labor in places that don't have that impact. So your ability to relate your work to your community is much stronger. It's the only kind of free lunch that, that higher education can offer somebody, and we, we often ignore it. For someone who's listening, who is interested in doing something with more resonance to the community, but has to work through that landscape, what is one step they could take? What is one thing that somebody can do to move a conversation forward that doesn't involve, I mean, you and I and, and, and others can work together on drafting boilerplate language and, and all those things, but that requires a team and an effort. If you're alone and you're listening to this and you say, I want to do something today, it's one thing somebody could do to start to move the whole conversation forward? I, I think, you know, a, a very simple step of doing what I did, which is to say, I'm only going to publish in open access journals. And then not only doing that, but also sort of making it clear that you've done that to your colleagues to open up that conversation as a simple step. And it, would, it, it shouldn't jeopardize the um, chances for tenure for anyone because, I would I believe that one could make the case that their work ha is has high impact uh, without publishing in the you know quote unquote top journals and and so the so it's it's both sort of taking that step saying I'm only publishing in open access journals but then also following it up by letting people know so that it opens up a conversation because in my experience that conversation opens to minds in ways that that might not expect so. I, I believe there are misconceptions out there about open access publishing, not as high quality, that it's not, it's not peer reviewed. I mean, there, there are plenty of high quality peer reviewed open access journals. 
I, I don't want to say that everyone has to sort of think about this, these things in, in the same way. Higher education is beautifully diverse. There's different disciplines. And it, it may not be the case that a faculty member in the humanities needs to really think about publishing and scholarship in new and, and modern ways. I do, however, believe that in, in, in my field, in the world of education, I think we have a very particular need to think about the impact of our scholarship beyond publishing in, in paywalled journals. Our audience, we, we are a, a professional school. Our students, our audience are educators who, are, who don't have access to our work. If you go to any UCEA conference, if you go to most of the AERA conferences, you mentioned you know, poverty is a theme. UCEA is, is deeply and wonderfully committed to social justice and equity. And to then produce work that's only available to, to the elite that have access to paywalled journal articles seems um, incredibly hypocritical to me. How do you say that you're deeply committed to equity and social justice, but then publish work that's only available to a select few? If we can sort of grapple with that issue, I think that might start to change some minds. John, thank you so much for joining us today. You can follow John on Twitter at John Becker and on the web at johnbecker.net. Thank you for listening to this episode of Edutechnicalities. Our bumper music, No, I Can't Be Happy Here, is courtesy of Austin Myers, who you can find at ak5a.bandcamp.com. Special thanks to our sponsor for this series, the Center for Faculty Scholarship and Development at Seattle Pacific University. Please join us again for the other episodes in our special series on rethinking scholarship in the 21st century, as well as the other special topics and themes that make Edutechnicalities the unique experiment in audio production that it is. My name is Roland Moe. We look forward to having you again. Goodbye. Thank you.